Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live from the History of Computing Museum in Mountain View, California, this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network, coming to you from the Convergence 08 Conference. Live to see it, friends. You're listening to an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. Or go straight to the blog at blog.speculist.com. At The Speculist and on Fast Forward Radio, we talk about what's happening in the world today, we talk about where the world is going, and we talk about the future. And we're not afraid to take a pretty unusual approach to those matters. To wit, we believe that if you're not excited about the future, you're not paying attention. We believe that the world might just be getting better all the time. And we believe that something's going to happen. Something wonderful. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hey, Phil. Anyway, tell us a little bit about what's going on uh, uh, there at Convergence 08. Convergence 08 is a ter- terrific event, uh, having, a, having a wonderful time here. We've got people interested in a number of different disciplines related to the future. We're, we're talking about cognitive tech. We're talking about biotech. We're talking about nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, and it, it is a very much organic, uh, do-it-yourself kind of convention. Uh, that's why we call it an uncon. People are putting together their own agendas. They're putting together their own programs. And uh, you show up and you, you, you look at what looks like interesting ideas for you, or you put, put up on the board what you think will be interesting ideas. And people gather around to, to hear what you have to say, or you, or you go to, uh, to hear what people have to say. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrific idea, and it's being very well executed. And uh, I, think, uh, I think everyone's learning a lot, having a, having a really great time, really exciting time here. That's great. That's great. Well, tell me about the venue a little bit. I, it's, it's an interesting place to hold this uh, conference. Well, I, you know, I just, it's great being in Silicon Valley. There's so many uh, interesting places for, for folks like us. Um, this history of computing museum. Let me tell you something about this, Steve. And I thought of you immediately when I uh, when I walked into the lobby of this place. You'll never guess what they have sitting in the lobby of this uh, of this museum. Well, I, I think I know. Um, it's the uh, it's it's a difference engine, isn't it? A working difference oh, engine. No, you, I, okay. Well, you will guess. Yes, that's exactly right. They have a they have a full scale working Babbage difference engine. That's correct. Never try to stump a geek. For <laughs> well, you know, had they been able to actually build that thing, obviously the computer revolution would have come a hundred years sooner. And so that's, uh, it was. I guess that goes to prove that the design was good. It's just that they were not able to engineer um, the the difference engine at the time that he made that design. So that's exactly right, and it does work. Uh, the the beautiful thing is, if uh, you you take Babbage's plans, you can construct a working 
computer, and it is there, and it is a very steampunk piece of equipment. And, and uh, you know, the theory is that, uh, uh, or the speculation, I guess, really probably is more appropriate to say, that had, uh, had Babbage uh, had the funding, had he had the support to put this into operation at that time, uh, we'd be living in a very different world today. We'd be living in a world that uh, that got pushed into the data age uh, while the industrial age was still going on. And uh, a lot of what uh, we read about in steampunk uh, science fiction, or some of that in any way, may have actually come to pass. It, it, would, it would definitely be a very different world we'd be looking at today. Well, you know, that reminds me of something that, uh, well, I've heard. Uh, George Dvorsky was talking about uh, Ben Gertzel's uh, speech there at the conference, how... Uh, uh, if if we were pushing harder in AI, we could have it a lot faster. So I wonder if that's sort of analogous to uh, the difference engine. Well, I, I think I think that's a, a good example, although it could be that the difference engine is more of a, uh, what I call a false dawn. You know, it, it was a precursor. It was, uh, it was the beginning of working towards something that we weren't really ready to, to do yet. Maybe, uh, sort of like I... Uh, my, my analogy uh, is, is always the Apollo program. Uh, you know, yeah. th- that was a, also a tremendous achievement, but it didn't really launch us into the, the space age the way we thought it was going to. It, it became kind of its own dead end, kind of an end unto itself. And it's entirely possible that had a Babbage machine been made uh, back at that time, it would have it, it been a, a terrific accomplishment and uh, everybody would have been really impressed with it. It's possible that until we had relays and then from relays transistors and from transistors microchips, it's possible that uh, it, it might have been kind of a dead end. It might, it might have been more of an oddity than, than an actual step uh, in evolution. But you never know. I mean, that's the interesting thing, interesting thing to speculate. One thing is for sure is um, we don't want to miss any opportunities for real dawns by being afraid that they're going to be false dawns. So um, I, I would agree with I would agree with Ben Gertzel that uh, – that we push and we, you know, we make what progress we can with these things uh, while we can. I guess we should uh, bring Michael into the discussion. Oh, well, we didn't mean to forget about Michael. We've got our chat host, Michael Darling, with us. Hello, Michael. Hey, I'm here. I'm curious how many people there are, um, do you think, either blogging or Twittering the, uh, the day? I would say that out of everyone here, and I'm guessing there are a couple hundred, uh, 300 people here, um, wow. about 300 people here, I, I would say that probably uh, a good 25% to 50% are somehow blogging it, Twittering it, uh, writing an email to somebody that's ending up on a bulletin board or uh, otherwise communicating what's going on. So as much as I like to be unique, I, I don't think that uh, we are doing either the speculist uh, Although fast forward radio kind of makes us uh, stand out a little bit, for sure. Not too many people uh, podcasting, huh? Right. Yeah, we're we're the we kind of we've got the the podcast franchise on this event, so that's pretty. Good. <laughs> so you're sort of the Joan Rivers of this thing because you're going to be jamming microphones in people's faces, right? I like to think of myself as the Joan Rivers of this event. Yeah, when when PJ comes on here in a moment, we can ask her who she's wearing. Uh, that's always my favorite question to give her anyway. So, um, in fact, it's just about time for her to uh, maybe make her way over here and, uh, of course, give me that slip of paper that I got. Uh, yeah, oh, wow. It'll be just a moment. Uh, PJ will be right with us. So, um Michael, we'll uh, look for some, hopefully we've got some action in the chat room uh, this evening as we did on Sunday. We had, a, we had a very lively chat going on there. If, uh, 
anyone listening has a question for any of our guests this evening, we're going to be talking to a number of different participants, organizers of this event. Um, let us know via the online chat. I don't think we'll be able to take calls this evening just because we're, uh, I think we're kind of maxing out our phone lines. So uh, chat is, is going to be the way to go. PJ, I didn't realize you hadn't filled your form out. That's okay. We can bring you on without the form. That's <laughs> He's being a good citizen. I know who you are. I, 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 I was just trying to be cool. Okay, so um, uh, at this time, I would like to introduce our first guest. It's PJ Manny. She is the chairman of the board of H+. Um, and uh, go ahead, uh, Stephen, bring on line four. All right. And PJ will uh, conclude her introduction. Uh, yes, I'm the chairman of the Board of Trustees of H+, and uh, I'm a writer and a futurist, and uh, I guess I frequent Fast Forward Radio Hanger Outer. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, was, I was telling Stephen uh, before, before we went live that uh, we'd been hearing quite a bit from the Stephen fan base. And uh, I consider uh, I consider you obviously a, a major uh, a major member of that organization. But uh, in addition to that, yeah, you've been a, a guest. You uh, have contributed content. You've called in your Hollywood correspondent, and uh, you've been a guest host as well. So I I really just think of you as part of the show. I mean, you're you're more more like family, which I guess is why we uh, maybe give you a harder time than we should sometimes. So that's okay. But is this the time I can ask for a loan? <laughs> Well, it's always a good time for that, absolutely. So um, we wanted to start out and just get uh, your thoughts, since you're an organizer, you're a leader, uh, you're kind of running this deal, um, along with Christine and, and some other movers and shakers here. Tell us uh, how you feel it's going and what have been the big aha moments for you so far at uh, Convergence 08. Well, it's been going really great. Um, we have 300 people, which is more than any, certainly one of our groups who have done conferences or on conferences in the past. Uh, it, it's definitely um, an additive process, which is, even though there's a lot of overlap in the kind of people who attend, let's say, uh, a Humanity Plus event versus a Foresight Institute versus a Singularity Institute event, um, we seem to have gained other people as well, uh, whether they're simply curious or they've been lurking out there the whole time and are finally making themselves known, I do not know. Uh, but on one hand, we have a lot of the, the usual suspects. Uh, on the other hand, we have a lot of people I've never met before, which is fantastic. Um, the, the conference has been great, as I think the unconference format almost always is, if it's organized even halfway, because it really finds the emergent information out of the chaos or the signal from the noise. And you have a wonderful opportunity not just to talk about the things you're passionate about, but to realize that there are other people who are as passionate as you about the same subjects. And so number one, you get to, you get to talk and influence each other. But number two, you might get to work together. You might create relationships uh, from these meetings that go far beyond just the weekend uh, that influence your work, your life, etc. Absolutely. Well, it, it, it seems to me that it's a, a matter of the uh, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts uh, in terms of uh, having people here who aren't uh, 
I guess the net new people that you were talking mm-hmm. about, the, 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 the folks who are not um, necessarily associated with any one of these organizations, or maybe they are, and it's just this is the first time they've made it. I mean, that's always a possibility. I'm sure that uh, even with uh, just the Foresight Vision Weekend, there, there wasn't a 100% overlap between any two. There of was course. Always, yeah, always, always new people coming. But um, I, I, there's got to be something synergistic about bringing all these different ideas together, and I think people are responding to that, and it looks to me like they're responding to it in a very positive way. Of the ideas that y'all are, are here. Oh, sorry, Stephen, I didn't mean to step on you. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I was going to ask PJ and Phil uh, of the ideas that y'all are hearing um, being presented. Uh, tell, uh, tell me just one or two that are like sticking out in your minds, that uh, perhaps from an unconference or perhaps from the uh, the regular speeches. Okay, uh, we're having a little bit of an audio difficulty. So, uh, PJ, were you able to hear that at all? Uh, I've actually lost all audio in my ears. Can you hear me clearly? Yeah, we can hear you okay. fine. Yeah, I can't hear anything that Stephen's saying, unfortunately. I can hear you because you're sitting next to me, but whatever was coming <laughs> through my earphones is now gone for some reason. That's fine. Stephen, give me the questions again, and I'll give it to PJ. Okay. I, just of the ideas and you know uh, that are being presented, um, uh, you know, uh, what, what, what's sticking out in y'all's minds? So what sticks out in your mind, PJ, of, of everything that we've heard so far today? What uh, has really got your attention? Well, Paul Sappho is pretty awesome. I, he, what I love about Paul Sappho is that he's the real deal. He's a true forecaster um, with a good track record, etc. But beyond that, he, it's very easy, as he says in his talk, for people to become enthusiastic about the future, but want it to be influenced by wish fulfillment. They want something to happen, therefore they think it's going to happen. And he really gives some very smart ways of thinking about how to think about the future, uh, where hopefully you're prognosticating and not wishing on a star. Um, I thought that was marvelous. He's very entertaining. He's very smart. Um, he had some marvelous laughs in his, uh, in his talk. And uh, just, you know, you hear some things and you go, yeah, that's, that's it. He's got it. He nailed it. That, that's, he's that kind of guy. Yeah, that, that was a terrific uh, keynote by, by yes. Paul Sappho. Uh, just a, a really interesting perspective. He only talked for, what, about 30 minutes, but it mm-hmm. was uh, really just a dynamic and a great approach. Although I have to say, if, if I were to uh, respond to that idea about, yes, wishful thinking is a danger, but you can't discount... Uh, the power of expectation, or the you know the power of mimetics. If, if we 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 can't make a thing happen by uh, expecting it to happen or hoping that it will happen in like the secret or something right, like that. Right. Right. The difference is that is that it's not about hoping that it will happen. It's about it, you can hope it will happen, but not guarantee it will happen. You can't promise something is going to happen just because you'd like it to be so. And I think that's the difference he's talking about. Yeah. And and you get this. Uh, uh, selection bias in terms of what you're uh, what you're interpreting the signs to be about what's happening in the future based on well you really want this outcome therefore everything starts to look like that and, yes. uh, and, and if, if if it's really not looking like that then uh, you're at pretty great risk so what's on uh, tap for tomorrow what what do we expect to happen uh, in the second day of the conference unconference we're going to have two more panels one will be on synthetic biology and one will be on longevity. Uh, we'll have another session of figuring out the great big board. Have you explained to people about the great big board? Um, 
we'll have one more session of doing tomorrow's board for tomorrow. Uh, and then we'll have three more unconference sessions where we get to you know, make that horrible choice. Uh, which one do I go to out of 16 options uh, at any given hour? It's really hard and really frustrating. <laughs> it's hard. But one of the one of the great things about oh one of the one of the great things about that model is that you are able to uh, pick and choose. There is no stigma to saying ah, I'm not interested in that. Uh, uh, this wasn't exactly what I thought it would be. Therefore, I'm going over to that subject instead. Um, and, and so, in fact, if you see three topics that you're interested in, rather than spending a full hour in one, you can sample and do 20 minutes of each, or uh, you know what, whatever works for you. That's absolutely correct, and that's uh, a wonderful advantage to the format. Um, there are times where you go, wait a second, I'm actually not hearing anything that I, I don't know myself about this subject. You can move on. Um, or, I mean, there is the occasional, you go to the subject and there's nobody there. Uh, but that's extremely rare. And, um, yeah, it, it's really based on wherever you go. What I love about the conference format is wherever you go, you are making the right choice. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way of looking at it. There's something of value to be gained from just about any of these sessions, especially because we all have something to contribute to them. Now, uh, can you tell us uh, any thoughts on what you'll be uh, – a great uh, session that uh, PJ put together today was a discussion on uh, presenting convergence technologies to civilians, and we had a lot of fun with that. Plus, I got to see the trailer for Bitch Slap, so I'm uh, totally stoked about that. Um, but uh, any, any thoughts on what you'll be doing tomorrow? Oh, well, I'm going to be giving one more session on empathy, the importance of empathy with emerging technologies, uh, which is based on a paper that I wrote for the Journal of Ethics and Technology. Um, then I'm probably going to see where life takes me. Okay. Well, that sounds like an excellent plan. We know empathy is uh, obviously a subject very near and dear to your heart. And uh, in her waning seconds, I believe PJ has audio back, Stephen. So if either you or Michael, anyone from the chat room has a question for her, now's the time. Okay, tell me, I, and, uh, this might be a question for you rather than PJ, but uh, both of you, tell me about this movie that you saw the uh, <laughs> saw promo. Oh, that, that's, uh, that's clearly a PJ question. Take it away, PJ. Well, uh, Bitch Slap is a movie that has been made by my husband, Eric Grundeman, and his partner, Rick Jacobson. Uh, Rick and Eric wrote it and produced it, and Rick Jacobson directed it. And it is a thinking man's exploitation movie. The best way to describe it is uh, a fun, rollicking romp that both tips its hat to the exploitation movies of the 50s to the 70s, and redefines it for a new era. There's uh, dangerous curves. There are lots of guns and explosions. Um, there's a lot of interesting sexual politics. And uh, it's pretty wild. I mean, really, you know, Phil, you're the fresh audience on that trailer. <laughs> I me, live with it. <laughs> let, let me give the pitch. I, I'm going to say this is uh, Grindhouse without all the gross stuff and uh, with much better production values. And it's hilarious. I hope it's supposed to be a comedy because I was laughing my butt off watching that trailer and uh, I think it's going to be huge. So we're really looking forward to seeing that. And uh, we thank you, PJ, for uh, joining us this evening and we look forward to having you on the program again very soon, maybe even tomorrow if we can catch you during lunch. But uh, best of luck with, uh, with the end conference.
thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for giving the Unconference so much great coverage. Our pleasure. Okay, Stephen, we're going to shut down four for okay. the time being. All right. And uh, that will give our next guest a moment to uh, take the seat. I, we can make these switches after all. turns out we didn't really need uh, two headsets after all, so uh, I think everything's going to work out great. Always a pleasure having the delightful PJ Manny on the program. Uh, uh, our, our, our next guest uh, has pointed out to me that his form is completely filled out well ahead of time. So uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and bring him on. Uh, very delighted to welcome for the first time ever to Fast Forward Radio, George Dvorsky. George is on the board of directors of the IWET. That's uh, uh, Intelligence and Emerging Technologies. Is that right, George? Did I say that right? The, uh at the Institute for Ethics Institute and Emerging Technologies. For Ethics and Emerging Technologies, thank you. Uh, he's a blogger and a podcaster at Cynthia Developments. Uh, he's a former board director at the WTA. He's a co-founder of the Toronto Transhumanist Association and also of Better Humans. George, welcome to Fast Forward Radio. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. A long-time listener, first-time caller. We've <laughs> oh. been waiting years to hear that. That's awesome. <laughs> no, I do. I listen to you guys quite regularly. As I was saying to Phil earlier, um, I make it a habit when I go out for a for a jog. I'm an avid runner. I load you up on my MP3 player, and uh, you guys help me along the the way as I'm running on the trails along the river. So thank you, guys. You guys put together a great show. Well, it's in part due to the fact that uh, you know we're still in your stuff. <laughs> 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 your, your blog okay. has been an inspiration to the show many times. So, okay, flattery as a <laughs> Thank you, guys. And flattery will always get you everywhere. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> well, when PJ hits us up for that loan, we'll just turn it right around to George, and uh, everything will work out great. So, uh, George, what uh, what's uh, caught your attention so far at uh, Convergence 08? Uh, what's on What's on your mind, or what have you learned or gotten excited about so far today? Um, I was able to attend three different talks. The one that really got me excited for a number of reasons, one on, at an emotional level and the other, uh, at a, I guess, uh, uh, from a technological level, was uh, Keith Henson's talk about extracting uh, solar energy from uh, space and bringing it back down on a planet. And it was emotional only in that it was a year ago at this time that uh, Keith was, uh, he was in jail and uh, due to his, his ad, uh, I guess, uh, Due to the, his, I guess, outspokenness against uh, Scientology and uh, some of the uh, mm -hmm. the back history that uh, that's involved there, and uh, it was great to see him back here because he's always been a fixture at the uh, at the Transvision conferences, as far as I can remember, and of course his seminal work with Eric Drexler and others, and uh, just remembering where he was a year ago at this time, and now to see him back on track and back here at this particular conference is uh, very exciting. And his talk, as usual, blew my mind. He was speaking specifically about how we're going to deal with the current energy crisis, and uh, in his. Uh, he had this scheme, uh, which is not entirely his idea, but he was refining it in the course in a very Keith Henson way, about sending up solar panels up into space and providing a schema for how we're going to, by using microwaves, beam that energy back down onto planet in such a way that we're going to replace our need utterly on fossil fuels. And we're talking, when I say our, I mean uh, a global need on fossil fuels. So that was exciting, only because it was just such an optimistic view as to where we can be as early as 2015 if we get this uh, program up and running and uh, get, it, uh, get it put together. Also, for me, exciting was uh, listening to uh, Anders Sandberg, the uh, Swedish polymath, 
discuss his, uh, his current project on whole brain emulation, which is a, a very fancy now and very, I guess, academic way of talking about uploading. Uh, in other words, how do we actually emulate an entire human brain? And he's providing a roadmap right now. And he, he showed his very fancy uh, uh, roadmap to the creating a, a whole brain emulation, and he just kind of drilled down at each level what we're going to need to do to make it happen. So it's just so exciting to hear that this is actually now going from the philosophical circles right into some of the more scientific circles, which is really what Anders' mission was to do it today. That's very cool. Um, Anders, of course, is going to be on uh, in about uh, 10 minutes, uh, 15 minutes, uh, 20 minutes. So uh, we'll be... Uh, Fantastic. Uh, and I'm not going to steal a thunder any more than I already have. We'll go right into the, uh, what was it? It was the whole brain modeling. Whole brain emulation. Emulation, excuse me. That's even, yeah. uh, that's even better. But let's go back to the uh, solar power from space. Uh, yeah, George, I wanted to ask, uh, how do you get from uh, solar power in space to the $1 a gallon gasoline? Uh, explain those links and how you get there. Absolutely. Uh, the first thing you need to do is set up an array of solar panels up in geosynchronous orbit. And Keith provided a really neat way as to uh, actually how we'll get those objects up there in a very cost-effective way. Um, and once they're set up, uh, they're going to do their thing by, of course, drawing in the, the solar, uh, their solar energy. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have my notes in front of me right now, but he was providing some hard statistics, everything from you know, how many kilowatts per hour, how many gigawatts are going to be translated from those, uh, from those devices. And he also spoke specifically as to how they will then, uh, through, uh, through microwaves, uh, beam down that, uh, that power through to receiving, um, uh, uh, I guess, m uh, microwave reception dishes that he described would be absolutely massive. That we're talking miles and miles across. So these are going to be dramatic uh, objects on the, on the planet in your equatorial regions, if I heard him correctly. And uh, we are talking gigawatts of power on a near daily basis uh, that's going to be so astounding in terms of uh, how it's going to alter our, 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 our energy sensibilities that, is, as he put it, what it will allow us to do uh, in terms of getting that one, uh, that $1 per gallon uh, gasoline is it will actually make it viable suddenly for us to create synthetic fuels. Because he says we're not really in a situation right now technologically where we can reject uh, the need still for fuel. As he put it, we're never going to have a plane that's going to run on batteries. And his point is very well taken. We still need fuel. The question is how we're going to get and now create that fuel. Because currently making synthetic fuels is just simply cost prohibitive. It doesn't make sense. Thus, our dependence on fossil fuels. And was such an interesting anecdote as well that uh, Keith was at uh, Orlando, Florida with some military types uh, a number of months ago discussing this, this particular strategy. And according to Keith, uh, he says that the military, they're aware of this, not simply, in, and, they're, and they're advocating for it, not simply because it makes sense from a, uh, the standpoint of meeting our energy needs, but the, the military is actually, and I'm stunned to hear this, they're, they're sensible enough to realize that when you reduce humanity's energy dependency to this degree, you are dramatically reducing the potentials for conflict and war, which you wouldn't oh. think is necessarily in the interest of the military, but I, 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 and I actually said, Keith, are you serious? Are they explicit about this? And he said in, in, in his personal conversations with them and what he was able to grok from this particular uh, um, seminar, he said, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, uh, well, it's sort of like uh, doctors. They're always, yeah, doctors are always trying to put themselves out of business, too. Uh, you would hope. So. <laughs> yes. Same yeah, kind of deal. Exactly. Exactly. The, the yeah. good ones, the ethical ones, and uh, obviously uh, it would be hoped that there, there are plenty of folks in the uh, in the defense business, maybe not the business, but in the the the, the who have that mission, uh, who who look at prevention yes. as a as a big part of their uh, as as what it Indeed. is they they need to do. Now, uh, George, uh, are you leading any sessions? Uh, did you do one today, or do you have one tomorrow? I am done. 
No, I'm done. I did my work yesterday. Yesterday was the uh, the, uh, the pre-conference, the symposium uh, that was organized by a number of groups, including the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and the Lifeboat Foundation, and it was on global catastrophic risks with the title of Building a Resilient Civilization. And uh, it was a packed room and a standing room only, and we, for the entire day, we basically uh, talked about not just the various threats that humanity faces. I mean, we all know what these are all about. We've talked about this as futurists uh, for quite some time now. And while we did want to focus on that to a certain degree, we were more interested in discussing how are we actually going to create that resilient civilization, that civilization that can both mitigate these risks and in the event that there is a global catastrophic risk, and again, just to get our terminology uh, correct here, existential risk, of course, being a human extinction event where there's no recovery, whereas a, a global a catastrophic event is a, a global-scale catastrophe, but one in which we could get back up on our, conceivably get back up on our feet again and put the pieces back together. And uh, we had, I mean, Anders Sandberg was there, and he provided a nice overview for us and uh, borrowed a bit from uh, some of the work that Nick Bostrom has done to organize and uh, categorize some of the threats. And we had a number of speakers come in and talk about nanotechnology and how, for example, green nanotechnology can uh, clean up the environment and uh, work in this capacity. We had uh, um, individuals there talk about how we're going to steer asteroids out of the way should they come, uh, and, and you know, these the so-called neos as they come into our proximity. So, and we had Jimmy Cassio there as well, speaking about resiliency and uh, looking at this as a design problem, which was really fascinating. That how do you create an elegant system that can uh, both prevent uh, risks and in a very elegant and systematic way go about uh, some disaster recovery procedures. And I uh, presented as well there yesterday. My focus was on perhaps some of the more darker uh, sides of things. I was really, what I wanted to do was address uh, the eventualities of us not creating a resilient civilization and looking at the kinds of political extremism that will emerge should we get somewhat complacent, should we not engage in foresight and so on. So I talked about the different ways in which you could see authoritarianism rear its ugly head again and how we could work again towards a gross suppression of civil, liber civil liberties and freedoms and so on uh, and just talk about how um, what, what are the tools that are, that are at, at the disposal of uh, politicians should they want to, um, to be repressive and reactionary in regards to both mitigating and dealing with, with catastrophes. And basically, the, just to sum my talk, uh, just the single point that I really wanted to get across was that whereas in the 20th century, political restructuring was based around uh, issues as to how we're going to redistribute wealth and manage the modern welfare state and, and a very mature industrial economy, political restructuring uh, to a very significant degree in the 21st century will, about, will be about how we alter our social institutions and political institutions to deal with the threat of existential risks and how to deal with ongoing disasters. And that's not a subtle thing. We're not talking about creating an agency here and an agency there. We're talking about the kind of thing that could lead to repressive authoritarian regimes in some circles. We could see rogue nations going on their own in a very isolationist way, not wanting to keep up with the rest of the, of the world. And you could even see the instantiation of a very paranoid and controlling totalitarian regime regime who can use some of the wonderful technologies that we're describing on both, uh, you know, on my blog and, uh, and uh, your blog in a very negative way uh, through everything from genetics through to uh, some of the neuroscience uh, technologies through to surveillance technologies. So I kind of created a very grim picture as to what might happen if we don't kind of get our act together now and engage in the proper uh, foresight activities to create, I guess, those kinds of institutions that will deal with X risks in a way that we can continue to preserve our freedoms and uh, preserve a sense of civility in human civilization. Well, it's a it's a huge a huge set of challenges. It's not one challenge. It's a huge set of challenges, and I think they uh, uh, it's it's encouraging at least that uh, folks like you and the IWET are thinking about these things and working on them. PJ mentioned earlier Paul Sappho's uh, keynote, and one of the things he said at the end was that the uh, uh, the vic the victory was going to come to those who have the 
longest worldview, and maybe it's not just the longest worldview, but uh, excuse me, the longest view of the future, but also the broadest, the one that's taking the most factors into consideration, and that seems to be uh, what yeah. uh, what you guys are trying to do. And in fact, I mean, it was a room of filled of maybe 40 to 50 people, and that was frustrating in its own right. That because uh, we were actually coming up with some pretty decent solutions yesterday, and not all of them were great, uh, but it's a start. You know, we're getting the conversation started, and many of us kind of you know, did leave the uh, the event yesterday with our heads down a little bit only because we didn't feel that many of our ideas would, would be embraced by either the public or by political entities, that no one actually would want to go go out of their way to put these sorts of things in, into action, either because of de denial, um, you know, politicians working to maintain the status quo or what have you. So I think uh, our real struggle right now is to continue to do what we're doing, have these seminars, get the word out as much as we can, and uh, hopefully it will become part of the larger political dialogue across the planet. And you know what? I do believe it's happening. And uh, I, for example, the term existential risks is something that we've always thought was kind of a little private term that we've used in the various futurist and foresight circles. But for those of you who are paying attention, for example, during the second debate between John McCain and Barack Obama, um, John McCain actually used the term. He didn't use the term to describe um, existential risks in terms of uh, human-wide extinction. He was using it in the context of a group existential risk as Israel right now looks, for example, to Iran and its potential for uh, uh, nuclear uh, weapon capability as Iran, Iran is posing an existential risk to the state of Israel. I was somewhat floored that uh, McCain would use such a term, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that he's actually up on the literature, but certainly somebody in the, in the, the back rooms who's, who is, is the responsibility to, uh, to keep up with some of the, the more uh, uh, leading uh, thinking and some of the more progressive foresight type thinking is clearly in tune with this, this dialogue. So I, I would say I'm encouraged by it in that I'm thinking that these discussions will start to enter into the political arena, it's entering into the vernacular, and it will start, I would hope, therefore, to make its way into political policy. Hopefully not in a, in a negative way where you could have uh, a, a justification for continuing to keep the population alarmed and phobic so that you can control them better, but such that you we're actually going to implement those kinds of policies and strategies to actually mitigate these risks. Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing moment. Uh, I, that was the first time I'd ever heard that term outside of the context of one of these, these kinds of meetings. So, yeah, it was uh, it, it's encouraging that, that that's getting out there. Um, well, uh, we're actually uh, right at our time with George. Uh, Michael, uh, Stephen, any, any questions for him in the last second here? Um, I think, he, uh, George, you pretty much uh, covered uh, how it is that we get from, uh, you know, uh, space uh, solar uh, to the $1 gallon gasoline. It, you basically you power the synthetic uh, synthetic fuels with this cheap electricity that's being beamed down via microwave. Is that is that the that just that's Keith's that was the point of Keith's presentation. Absolutely, that's Inside. an exciting possibility. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. It is. All right, George, George, appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much. Continued success to you, and uh, we will definitely get a link up on the uh, show notes to the uh, IWT event yesterday, so that uh, uh, more people have Thank exposure you. to that, hopefully. And, and as uh, well, just uh, if I could add as well for your uh, listeners who are interested, I am live blogging Convergence 08 here this weekend, and uh, you can catch that at my blog, Sentient Developments, and just Google that, and you'll find it. And uh, I'm also twittering, and so I'm doing a little bit of microblogging of the event as it, uh, as you know, I'm able to kind of encapsulate in 140 characters some profound statements. And uh, my Twitter username is George Dvorsky, one word. So feel free to add me as uh, somebody you want to follow. Thanks, Absolutely. guys, for having me. Great stuff. Absolutely, Thank you, George. And uh, George has done a lot of blogging uh, uh, about the conference there. So um, if, you, if you want to get a flavor of what's going on, what's being said, that's probably one of the best places to go. It's a great place to go, absolutely. 
All right, we're going to bring up our next guest now. Uh, I'd like to welcome Miguel F. Asnar to the program. Miguel is the Director of Education for the Foresight Nanotech Institute. And every summer he teaches nanotechnology at UC Santa Cruz. So, Miguel, welcome to Fast Forward Radio. Thank you very much. Uh, is there a volume control? Th there is, yeah. Let me, uh, one moment here. Uh, well, maybe there's not. Let's see. Uh, we, we've got a little technical problem. Give me just one second. Let me help out uh, Miguel here. No problem. Uh, Michael, they, uh, was there a problem with the uh, audio there? I noticed y'all were talking about that in the chat room. No, one, um, that one member, Silverton, lost audio, but he got it right back when he reopened the window, I think. Okay. Here we go. Okay, one second. I'm 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 on the case. I think I know how to fix this. Okay. This is okay. Uh, we're we're learning as we go. With uh, this is our first time doing a remote show, so pardon the. Uh, yeah, first time. How's that, Michael? Is that any better, Miguel? Excuse me. Perfect. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay. Now we'll take it away. Uh, tell us uh, what are your uh, major impressions so far at uh, Convergence 08, and uh, any uh, any big aha moments? Anything you've anything you've learned? Anything you'd like to share with our listeners? It's my second unconference. So last year I attended the Foresight Unconference, and very much like that one, I love how you can drift through different conversations and pick up what you'd usually pick up in the hallways of a conventional conference. I, I love that there are, are a dozen different sessions going at the same time, and you can move from one to the next. So far I've focused on education, and I've, I find it fascinating how we figure out what we're going to teach in an environment where technology changes so very rapidly. Well, it was great that back-to-back -back we had PJ's session on how do we communicate uh, ideas about converging technologies to non-technical audiences, to what she calls civilians, uh, followed immediately by your session, which was on uh, what are the key ideas that we want to get across to 12-year-olds. And uh, I, I think we'd all be interested to hear what uh, what ideas did uh, people come up with? What, what do they think is, is core for the 12-year-old curriculum? Boy, there were a lot of them. And one of the the tasks that I have ahead of me is digesting the, the notes that I took from that session. But a few that came up is that uh, when you have accelerating change, there's going to be a divergence of haves and have-nots. Uh, it's almost a, a corollary that if you have things changing so rapidly, those that have the, the lead technology are going to be moving faster than those who are on the tailing end, tail end of technology. But it's, it's immensely important for participatory democracy that people have the basic concepts and can communicate about this. So that's, that's one of the things, two of the things that came up in that session. Yeah, that's, and that's really key. I mean, uh, it, it seems to me that um, there's, a, there's a tendency, and not necessarily in a, in a negative way, but um, a, a tendency to, uh, at an event like this, to think of kind of the, the, the masses, the great unwashed, as not having any real say in this since they're not interested. But seeing as we're talking about... Uh, radically, ultimately changing the world we all live in um, and, and the world that we all have a, a responsibility for, that, that getting, getting that message to young people um, you know, is as important as, as getting it out to uh, their parents, maybe even more so, because they're going to be dealing with it even more, than, uh, even more than we are. And we've seen what can happen when the technologists don't choose to communicate with the 
general public, uh, look at, at Europe's reaction to biotech foods and uh, the, the push that, well, don't worry about it, you don't need it labeled. And Europe pushed back, and the U.S., I guess, is still somewhat unsettled. It's still unmarked. It's still this implicit statement of, trust us, you don't need to know. And I think that if we took a similar approach with convergent technologies, it could be a good deal worse than the reaction that's occurred in Europe. Absolutely. And, and there's just a, you know, a culture of openness, of sharing, of wikis, of uh, you know, open source uh, is a movement that uh, Christine Peterson was involved in the origin of, just as she's involved in the you know, founding of the Foresight Nanotech Institute. And it seems to me the fact that those two things have a kind of a common uh, origin says a lot that, that, um, that developing these advanced technologies and sharing information about these advanced technologies uh, is, is equally important, that those two efforts have to go hand in hand. So that gives you an important job as the uh, uh, director of education. I, I feel the load on my shoulders. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about these camps that you run. There's a program called Cosmos, which is run at four of the University of California campuses, uh, UC Santa Cruz, Irvine, Davis, and San Diego. Uh, there are four precocious high school students, as I call them. I'm sure there's a, a more politically correct term for it. Uh, but you get the idea if you select from the top one or two or three uh, academically speaking, from each of the high schools in California and allow them to spend four weeks on campus focused on nothing but some aspect of uh, science, math, or engineering. And the class that I teach is at UC Santa Cruz and it focuses on nanotechnology. There are a few professors that teach robotics in the afternoon, but I get my 17 students every single day for a month, every morning, except weekends, uh, to talk about nanotech, and one of the beauties of it, beyond just the, the obvious fact that they're precocious, they really want to be there, and they're not distracted by much of anything else, the other aspect is that my class is prerequisite to nothing, which means that I get to teach whatever I think is the most important, uh, marvelously freehand. You're not bound to prepare them for what the next professor is expecting. And that gives me license to come to a, an event like Convergence 08 and ask people, what do you think is the most important concept, or if you're going to teach something to your child or grandchildren or niece or nephew, and you could only impart something on you know, a three-by-five card, what would you tell them to thrive in the future? And that's the kind of thing that I impart, or at least do my best to, uh, through this nanotechnology class, to give them the basic concepts, as well as bringing in guest lecturers who are looking at, or actually doing deeper research, but by the, giving them context, they're able to absorb that information from the guest lectures, and they're able to absorb future information. Great. So, uh, uh, Michael, Stephen, uh, questions for Miguel? Well, I was just going to comment that one thing that I've really tried to impart in my own 11-year-old, um, who, who's a little bit precocious, <laughs> and, and I'm glad of it, uh, he, he, that um, you know, it's important to learn to learn and to love it. Uh, you, stuff that you can learn today, particularly about tech, it's you know might be of use to you for a couple of years, and uh, then you got to be ready to learn to move to the next paradigm when it comes along. You have to be ready to move quickly, and uh, and and be willing to to make the next step. That learning to learn is something that I really push in the class. We take a few minutes at the beginning of every class for any student to teach us something. So it's not just the professor is teaching the student, but it's a two-way street. I want them to get used to going off and searching and bringing us stuff. 
And I actually I asked them, who found sugar? Explaining that ants are amazingly good at finding sugar or whatever sweets you leave out. And they can be more effective than one animal because they have this, uh, this hive approach. Mm. So we have a small hive. I have 17 students. And I say, well, if you all go out and search for new information and find the most, bring back the most interesting stuff, the sweetest sugar, present it, and it could be that what you've discovered will be of uh, great interest to someone else in class, maybe to me, and we'll ask, where did you get it? What's your source? In effect, what we're doing is we're asking, to, uh, we're asking them what the uh, chemical trail is back to wherever they found the sugar. Right. So we're uh, doing a little bit of biomimetics to keep that practice of learning honed. That's great. That's a great approach. I, I wonder, um, I've been thinking a lot and asking everyone what's got them excited, what's the thing that makes them go, aha. When you do these camps, what is it that sticks out in, the, in, the, uh, in your mind as far as the reactions that you get from, from young people? What is it that really makes them excited uh, about these kinds of ideas? What, are, what, what do they really respond to? One thing that jumps out is when they see application for what they've been studying in school because they've all been taking an amazing amount of science and mathematics. Uh, even when they're in their sophomore year, it seems uh, quite a few of them have advanced placement classes underway and even completed. But I think that they're somewhat limited in what they've been able to see as application for what they're learning. They're, they're, they're motivated enough to learn without it. But when they are in a, a, a guest lecture from a professor who's talking about going to the north of Japan and fishing an extremophile out of a boiling acid bath, bringing it back, genetically modifying it so it incorporates nickel, and using that to create this nanoscale pattern of nickel, which could be used to create far higher density storage than we have in a current, say, iPod. All along the way, they see pieces of what they've been learning, pieces from physics, pieces from chemistry, from calculus, and they light up and they realize, wow, the things I've been studying could apply to this fascinating adventure, this Indiana Jones without the whip. And <laughs> I, I think it's, it's very motivating. And it's fun for me to see that aspect. So that's one of the things that uh, I remember and, and really uh, impresses me from those sessions. That's great. Um, Michael, any, anything from the chat room for uh, Miguel or... Uh well, I would say any of our guests, but they're all gone now, so it's, it's got to be Miguel. <laughs> I've got one for Miguel, Michael. Uh, this is Michael. I'm in the chat room. Um, Ken Robinson does one of my favorite TED Talks, and Ken Robinson is a Brit and a, uh, a professional educator. And in that TED Talk, he comes to the conclusion that in our era, uh, in modern education, literacy or creativity is just as important as literacy and yet he sort of concludes that we're not really sure how to teach creativity. And I guess that's not so much a question as is, you know, there, comment. <laughs> how does Ken Robinson define literacy? Roughly. Reading and writing. Reading and writing. Okay. There's a, another definition of literacy that I've been using with my students and also with a, a nonprofit corporation that I direct called Knowledge Context. Uh, and it's in contrast to proficiency. There's a, a curriculum for middle schoolers that Knowledge Context just gives away on their website. And 
it contrasts technological proficiency, which you're able to operate a computer, you know which button to push. And it's very useful, but it often tends to be a, a skill that becomes obsolete in short order. You can contrast that with technological literacy, where you can understand and evaluate tools. And it's much more of a viewpoint that you'd see it's a, a futurist uh, conference similar to this, or at a convergence conference. And it's largely teaching them what are those enduring patterns that don't change every three years, five years, ten years. And I think that it's not the same as creativity, but I believe it does give the big picture view of technology that can foster creativity. And I would agree that there's this division between proficiency and literacy, and probably as well proficiency and creativity. And when technology moves very rapidly, it's all too easy for us to get caught up in, oh, mesmerized, as it were, by the rapidly changing technologies and think that all that you really need to do is know how to operate it and lose track of the, the long arc of history and realize that there's an evaluation level that's even more important when technology changes so rapidly. And what was that nonprofit board? It's called Knowledge Context. So if you run the two words knowledge and context, E-X-T, together and go to .org, you'll find uh, this, it's a 501c3 nonprofit, and there are, uh, there's a curriculum for teaching technological literacy. And very soon there's going to be a link to a wiki. You can actually find the wiki now. It's a pbwiki.knowledgecontext. Uh, which will allow people to make their own additions to the curriculum. So if people think that there's an important concept of technological literacy that's not well represented, they can put that in. If they know of activities that they think would work well with, uh, stu with students, younger, older, they can put that in. Uh, we, don't, we haven't worked very much with homeschoolers, and yet we've had over 1,000 downloads by homeschooling parents. So one reason for the wiki, one motivation, is to allow the homeschooling parents to say, you know what, the activities you have, they work great in a 30-person classroom, but we don't have 30 kids. We're, uh, you know, we stopped at seven. And here's an activity that would teach the same concept a lot better. It was hard for us to develop, but if you, you know, let us post it, and then the next homeschooling parents won't have to recreate the wheel. That's great. I, I wonder if um, maybe the, 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 the answer... Uh, on what's more important, literacy or, or creativity, is that uh, it, is it possible that considering just the scope of what we have to deal with, yeah, creativity becomes the more important skill. But how are you gonna how are you gonna use it unless you have literacy, right? What are you what are you ever going to uh, to be able to do with it? So it's almost like it's the it's the it's the fundamental uh, it's the fundamental skill that you wouldn't be able to deploy your creative your creativity very effectively without that in place. I think that's I would, true, and please go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I would just comment that it seems that creativity is, in a way, just the next step of literacy. It's uh, um, it, it's the thing that allows you to operate in a, in a world that's changing all the time. Yeah. I would I'd agree with that. I think creativity is maybe that next step up the Maslowian scale, and we have maybe proficiency at the the first step, then literacy at well actually it's. Proficiency and literacy, I, I wouldn't put as uh, on one above the other. I think that they sit very well side by side. I absolutely want someone who's proficient to repair my car, to do surgery on me if I need surgery, 
And I think everyone should have a degree of literacy so that they can understand and evaluate the tools in their lives and, and vote and be an active part of society, an intelligent active part of society. Right. Yeah, not to not to say that there's no no creativity in preliterate societies or that young children who haven't learned to read yet aren't aren't creative. But as as far as developing the skills, it seems to me that uh, that that's got to be the uh, it's got to be the order that we uh, uh, that, that that we go after that. Well, uh, so uh, how's tomorrow looking? Are you going to be leading any other sessions or uh, other plans for the rest of the conference? Unconference, excuse me. Uh, very likely, I spoke to a fellow who had run a session on. The, the myth of technology, it was not his title, but it was the gist of it, and that session ran simultaneous with my key concepts for 12-year-olds. And the, he came over just as our key concepts for 12-year-olds was segueing into myth and the importance of myth in understanding technology. And he said, ah, I just addressed this. So I spoke to him afterwards about having a combined session where he and I would uh, present on myth and technology from our different perspectives, and even more important in my mind to present, draw in the remarkable brains that are present here and get their opinions, their viewpoints. It was great watching him walk into the room. I happened to be in your session, and I had missed his. I had told him I was probably going to be at his, and I ended up in yours. And uh, he came in, and he saw that whiteboard that had, uh, uh, or that easel that had uh, I think Frankenstein on it, and he goes, "Yeah, but you forgot the mummy and the golem." And he's yeah. talking about all these other uh, mythological uh, ideas that uh, that might have been included. So it's it's great to see the the cross pollination, the, the 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 way the ideas are working across each other, and, and the way we're having this, you know, even within a couple of days, a real kind of a dialogue developing uh, from different disciplines and from different levels of uh, different areas of interest, uh, forming something really new. Absolutely, it is. Well, Miguel, we uh, thank you very much for being part of the program, and we uh, wish you uh, the best of success, and uh, we hope to have you back on again sometime. Maybe we'll talk a little further about education with nanotechnology. It's been a pleasure, Phil. I hope to be back soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Stephen, you can shut that down, and we'll uh, bring it back up in just a moment. Okay. We're uh, diverting from my schedule a little bit, but no one here knows my schedule, so uh, this will seem like uh, we're uh, doing this right on, uh, right on time. Two of our guests didn't show up, but we're running late, so everything's working out perfectly. Um, our, our next guest is Brian Mallow, and uh, you can learn all about him at sciencecomedian.com. He was one of the speakers at our uh, get-together last night. We had a foresight uh, get-together I wrote about on the blog earlier today. Uh, Brian is from San Francisco, and uh, actually, if you read Nature Magazine or you can get your hands on a copy, there was a short piece about him, uh, which in, in the upcoming issue will be available November 27th, so everybody be on the lookout for that. And Brian, welcome to Fast Forward Radio. Thank you for having me here. Now, tell us what a science comedian is. Well, we know what a comedian is, right? Uh, I'm a comedian, and I have been for about two decades. I was always somewhat science geeky, science flavored, but uh, now I've decided to focus entirely on on science. Uh, so I draw from, and, and you know what I, I always did? I always drew from the language and the metaphors of science, whether, no matter what I was talking about, it didn't even have to be a science topic. <clears throat> I would draw, like if I noticed that when my mother lost weight, my mo- uh, father would gain weight, mm-hmm. and when my dad lost weight, my mom gained weight. I figured it was the conservation of mass within our family. <laughs> and, you 
know, <laughs> uh, you don't actually lose weight. You just give it to somebody else. Fat can be neither created nor destroyed, one of the basic laws of the universe. <laughs> so sometimes kind of silly. I'm not sure, you know, like, so that's my version of science comedy. But then I attack a lot of science topics as well. And uh, an event like this, Convergence, is, is definitely a lot of uh, fuel for future comedy. Let it all seep into my brain and percolate. Well, one one thing I saw happen last night was that it felt like at one point you really got on a roll and uh, you you were able to bring out some material that maybe you don't get to use with very many audiences. Is, is that uh, is that a fair assessment of what was going on there? It is. Um, I, I I work for a lot of different kinds of crowds and like two basic groups. One is a general audience, and the other is specialized groups, and they're both fun and they're but they're very different for a, for a general audience. I might have to explain a little more. And maybe the fun is in finding colorful ways and colorful analogies and metaphors to explain a little bit of science concepts uh, to them. When you have a specialized group, you can count on the fact that we all know I can make the most obscure reference. I can make a joke about cloud chambers, and I know that they're going to appreciate it. Or uh, I think the part of one thing that I know you enjoyed was I started doing this. It's been very successful in my show, so I have to write more of them. But uh, using an old, very standard comedy structure right. of uh, something walks into a bar, you know what it came from? Uh, there's a a museum called the Koshland Museum of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. And I've done shows there three years in a row, an annual show. First year, I just did a general rational comedy for an irrational planet. They asked me to come back the second year, but they said, could you, could you do a new show about our exhibit, uh, maybe something going along with our exhibit on infectious disease. <laughs> so an infectious disease-themed show. Yeah, a comedy about infectious disease. What could be uh, more natural, right? I mean, exactly. Well, of course I said yes, because um, <clears throat> I wanted the gig, but... Then it was challenging, so I'd written some stuff about viruses, and then I, that is how I came upon this idea of, here, some kind of somewhat corny jokes, but they end up having a certain momentum, and we all acknowledge they're corny, and they ended up, it's become a really good part of my show, and I'm stretching in, like the virus, the, one, the, the first one I wrote was a virus walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve viruses in this bar. The virus replaces the bartender and says, now we do. <laughs> and this is for a general audience. It followed a description. Like, you know, for the general audience, I did a little explaining of what an interesting thing, the virus, how a virus functions and goes in and takes over a cell, like a hostile takeover. So uh, then it was like uh, an infectious disease walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve infectious diseases in this bar. The infectious disease says, well, you're not a very good host. <laughs> so kind of corny, uh, but then, and then drifting into other subjects, some helium gas drifts into a bar. And can I just say, this was my absolute favorite, okay? <laughs> I thought you were already done, because you did a bunch before we got to the helium and right. walked into a bar, and uh, this is my favorite joke. Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry for the build-up. No problem. But, uh, it's, the whole thing is so weird to me, because... The others, because to me, these jokes are very, they're kind of simple and easy and punny, and I, I work so hard to craft beautiful, original, uh, intelligent humor, <laughs> and then this stuff, though, uh, has killed. become a very successful part of my show. It kills. It does. And so, um, and that, that's why I just recently wrote a, a bunch more, but uh, this one has been, you're not the only one that I think oh, makes okay. this one better. Some helium gas drifts into a bar. 
The bartender says, we don't serve noble gases in this bar. The helium doesn't react. <laughs> so, that one actually took me a second the first time. I'm like, I wonder, oh, I didn't, I didn't. And then, and then you want to kind of do the get it. But, uh, <laughs> so, and then because I had such a wonderful, smart group last night, I actually tried out a couple that had never been said out loud in front of an audience. Only bounced off of my girlfriend. Um, so a delightful and patient woman, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> she must be, yes. Yeah. That's a pretty safe assumption. Um, but one was a neutrino walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve neutrinos in this bar. The neutrino says, I was just passing through. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, all in all, it was a lot of fun. So I love performing to this kind of group where, where you can bring up weird topics, you can... Sp- Speak the way you want to speak, and, and everyone appreciates it. It's pretty different. You know, a standard comedy club audience, um, not necessarily the, uh, you know, I like comedy clubs, and there are smart comics out there, but just the average audience, they're not always, you know, there's, look at the, the most popular stuff in any subject, whether it's music, film, comedy, books, you know, our favorite authors are, are rarely the ones that are the very best sellers. Right, right. That's a good point. So um, what, what do you think uh, is the breakdown of uh, the kinds of audiences who, who ask to have a science comedian come speak to them? Is it, is it mostly technical groups? Do, you, uh, do other people look at that and go, well, that would be odd. That would be an interesting and different thing. Let's have a science comedian come talk to us. Or uh, what's, what's the breakdown? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can give you actual percentages, but uh, um, I do a lot of science organizations like the American Chemical Society. Um, I want to do more museums. I've had really fun at the outlets, two different outlets of the National Academies. Uh, this Koshland Museum in D.C. I've done three times. And, and in Irvine, California, there's uh, something called the Beckman Center. And you know what? I'll tell you one thing that's really interesting about it is that I've always been a comedian, so I refer to a performance. But where I'm performing a lot now uh, they're used to having speakers, and they talk about uh, your lecture or your presentation. So it's always a little odd because I'm still feeling like I'm performing, but I'm kind of liking the idea of like speaking about my presentation. Oh, yeah. yeah that, you know what? That, that sounds like it's worth more money, maybe. Yeah? <laughs> yes, yes. That's a, maybe that's why I like it. But uh, then, yeah, you know, especially in the Bay Area, there are a lot of tech companies. And actually, tomorrow night, I'm going to go from this conference to an event that I just picked up um, just within the past couple weeks. It was very convenient that I was already in the South Bay, but it's called the Foundation for Excellence, and it's actually an Indian organization, and they are about promoting science education um, for for young people. So this is um, a fundraiser or something that's going to have a lot of people that have uh, donors there, and they thought... There, there's definitely a science connection here, and they thought that I would be great. They'd seen a video of me online, sciencecomedian.com, and they thought that I would be great entertainment for this group. Well, that sounds that sounds terrific. We'll, we'll be sure and get a link uh, to sciencecomedian.com in our uh, – actually, I, I don't even have to put it in the show notes. You know, it's already on the blog. I already put it up this morning after oh, uh, watching it last night. So, yeah, we are, we are uh, 
doing our best to uh, get the word out there that there is at least one science comedian in the world, and uh, he is available. So um, I'm even available for off-world appearances if transportation is provided. <laughs> yeah, sure. you, would, you, would, you would need them to make those arrangements. Okay. Uh, Stephen, uh, Michael, uh, any chat room questions? Or, uh, Stephen, any questions uh, for you, uh, from you for Brian? No, but, I mean, uh, Brian, uh, you're a funny guy, and I, I appreciate you sharing some of your material with us. I, I laughed out loud about <laughs> constantly. Appreciate it, man. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, we, we are delighted to have you. I tell you what, let's uh, plan on getting you on the uh, schedule, and we'll have you back uh, for, a, for a full show one of these, uh, one of these Sunday great. evenings. Yeah. All right. Brian Mallows, continued success to you, sir. Thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of uh, Convergence 08. Thank you. Okay, well, uh, that's actually going to do it. I think uh, our other guests are no-shows, uh, so I think we're just going to have to uh, move on, unless, Stephen, you had some uh, other topics that you wanted to uh, touch on this evening. Well, um, I, I guess I should throw that right back at you, Phil, because uh, you're the one that's there. Um, anything else that stick, sticks out in your mind about uh, some of the things you've seen and, and uh, some of the ideas presented? Well, I think, you know, after uh, having these uh, these four conversations, I think the, the thing that really sticks out in my mind is just, uh, uh, you know, it's not just the ideas that you encounter, which are uh, very interesting, intriguing, exciting, challenging. Um, it's the people you meet at these events that uh, that, that really make it a, a, a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, you know, uh, PJ became part of our program because we met, uh, I met her at this event last year, uh, Brian Wang is going to be on uh, tomorrow, uh, a friend of ours who's been on the program a couple of times. And uh, just, you know, between Miguel, uh, Brian, um, I won't mention the people who weren't here, uh, and George, um, I, I think we had, uh, we, you know, we had some really wonderful conversations here this evening. And it just gives you a little flavor of the kind of thing that's going on in the hallways, uh, around the snack tray, uh, all day for two days. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's a wonderful event. And I, uh, for, for anyone listening who's thinking that uh, maybe they ought to think about going to this in the future, I can only say absolutely uh, try to make it to try to make it to one of these. You'll you'll be very glad you did. It's never a bad idea to go, huh? Um, I, I was not. I, I, you know, one thing that I, you know, I, I guess I would just have to be there to know this for sure. But I mean, something that Miguel said about how he's doing his uh, unconference presentation on education, and then this other guy walks in and he's. And uh, he has so much to contribute about myth, and and I mean two pretty different fields, but there's a synergy there, and so that's to me that it's not just the interesting ideas that you hear, but how they fit together in kind of new and interesting ways. Well, yeah, I'll tell you, uh, uh, George Dvorsky and I were both at a talk that uh, James Hughes put on. James, of course, has been on uh, Fast Forward Radio before, the uh, head of the IWET, and uh, the title was. Um, I believe it was uh, cyborg serfs and digital Buddhas, and uh, <laughs> and that. it lived up to it. It absolutely lived up to it. Talked it talked about the um, the coming age of prosperity that that uh, technology will provide, such that we have these robotic or cyborg cyborg serfs who are doing all the work for us. We uh, we enter this age where uh, scarcity no longer exists. Uh, we, we live in this age of complete abundance, and uh, then what do we do? Well, uh, the formula for James Hughes and, uh, and some of these kinds of folks is, well, that's when we can really start working on uh, straightening ourselves out spiritually. 
and uh, they started talking about uh, the, the perspective there was Buddhist, but uh, it, it, it would apply, I think, across the board to any kind of uh, spiritual practice or discipline, how people who have been freed from having to pursue this work ethic and uh, you know, spend all their days grinding away at work, they, they might focus on their inner life. They might focus on meditation and uh, achieving something uh, internal. And, uh, you know, it was uh, not something I had expected. Oh, I suppose there's a risk of becoming a worthless jerk uh, if if everything's being provided for you. So I guess you fight against that by self improvement. I guess that was exactly the point. Yeah, that that well, you might become not even a jerk. You might just become a worthless blob, right? You, 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 right. I mean, we've talked about the, uh, the 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 great the great danger of the uh, of the invention of the holodeck. Uh, that that becomes the last invention ever. Uh, uh, ever developed in human history, where once people jack in and 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 their uh, uh, their pleasure centers are being stimulated all the time, humanity just pretty much ends, right? Because there's 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 nothing left for you to do. So yeah, these these guys were talking about. Well, here's an alternative to that. Let's work on developing our inner life. Let's work on how we make ourselves. Now that we're free, we're free from having to uh, to uh, you know scrape to to feed ourselves and to clothe and shelter ourselves and to survive. So so what do we do? Uh, let's let's work on uh, let's work on becoming better people. It was a, it was a great, uh, fascinating co- combination of those two kinds of things. And it just goes to show you when you bring uh, a, a lot of diverse people together, uh, especially with these just kind of eclectic uh, uh, perspectives on the world, you you end up with um, you end up with something that again I think it's it's greater than the sum of the parts. It's really uh, it's really a pretty remarkable thing. That's great. Well, is it time well, to know, introduce have, I was going to say, do we have any music lined up for tonight? We sure do. We sure do. Um, uh, the the title of the song is Running With Me, and it's by Gene Sinodinos, I guess is the last name. Um, and uh, we'll have all, uh, links to uh, that that song, as well as the other uh, topics we talked about tonight, uh, in the show notes, uh, probably up sometime tomorrow. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll look for those, Stephen. I uh, very much appreciate you being part of the program. No, you weren't feeling your best tonight. So uh, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging in with us, man. Well, I wouldn't have missed it. It, would, it was just uh, I knew it was going to be a great show, and it was. So it's fun to be a part. Very of. gratifying to hear that. All right. Well, thanks and thanks, Michael, for uh, holding down the chat room and to all who are listening, uh, either live or to the MP3 recording. We thank you for being part of Fast Forward Radio, and we will be back tomorrow at a special time for part two of our live coverage from Convergence 08. Until then, good night. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.